electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now in Last Call, a hot job market and ice-cold job-related stocks. What exactly is going on? We'll dig into it. Colluding on rent? Washington, D.C.'s Attorney General taking a hammer to landlords. He says, broke the law. He is here. That's a wrap. The jury set to deliberate on the Sam Bankman-Fried fate tomorrow. Plus, another huge offshore wind project bites the dust, and now state taxpayers may be holding part of the bag. What's love got to do with it? Apparently nothing. Why dating stocks are down in the dumps and the World Series striking out. We're going to show you what is behind the fall. Classics, worst viewership ever. Maybe, you know, the teams, all that and much more in this action-packed hour. So belly up or buckle up because last call is up right now. Well, good evening here. Good afternoon at West. I am Brian Sullivan. All of that ahead. But first up on last call, a big day in D.C. The Federal Reserve not raising interest rates again. This is now only the second time in 13 meetings where they have not raised the base level borrowing cost. Stocks liking the news and maybe hoping all rate hikes are done. Here is Fed Chair Jay Powell earlier today. We understand the hardship that high inflation is causing. And we remain strongly committed to bringing inflation back down to our 2% goal. Given how far we have come, along with the uncertainties and risks we face, the committee is proceeding carefully. But in the fast-paced world of Wall Street, that's already now in the past. The only question that matters is what's going to happen going forward. Let's bring in our panel. Fundstrat, Global Advisors, Managing Partner, Mr. Tom Lee, and Senior VP at Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management, Katerina Simonetti, Katerina, and Tom, thank you both for joining us. Katerina, the market seemed to like it, didn't love it, sort of a strong like, if you will. Should it have, or did we misread it somehow from the Fed today? Well, Brian, today's pause by Federal Reserve was highly anticipated by the market. Rates on bonds have been going up for the last couple of months. So in essence, the bond market has been doing Fed's job. And in their statement today, the Fed did mention the tightening credit and financial environment, which pushes the cost of borrowing both on credit cards and on mortgages and, of course, on corporate loans and is having a profound effect on the corporate and consumer confidence. And it's only the matter of time that is going to be translated into earnings. And while Fed is might be done raising rates, you know, we're not quite at the point where they're ready to cut yet. And yeah. this means that this narrative of higher for longer might be here to stay. Tom, if the Fed is or the bond market is doing the Fed's job, then what is the Fed's job? Like if the, if the bond market is moving yields around, why has the Fed conti- until today continued to aggressively raise rates? If, if to Katarina's point, the bond market knew this was going to be the path. Well, I think today might have been the first press conference where the Fed is shifting away from data dependence. Because Explain. 
Well, uh, a couple things came up. You know, one was a question about, hey, you missed inflation expectations jumped, and Powell was quick, quick to dismiss it and saying, look, you know, a lot of other surveys show inflation's in a good place, expectations. And then the question came up about, uh, you know, above average growth. If, if the Fed was data dependent, they'd be wanting to sort of push that down. But they said they can see labor supply dynamics driving that. And thirdly, they, they, they noted progress on the PCE report from last month. I mean, that's a forward-looking view because on an absolute basis, that's still a hot number. So you think they're going with the gut? If they're not going to be data dependent entirely, are they just going with the, all the fields or what? Well, that would allow them to look at the move in long-term rates and say that's you know four hikes, and that allows them to be patient. And then I think as long as inflation expectations are anchored and businesses don't pass on price increases, I think inflation is going to cool yeah. pretty quickly. Katarina, in 1994, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates 2.5%. We call it 250 basis points in the biz. And in 95, the Dow had one of its best years ever, rising 33%. A lot of, lot of worries about the, the economy right now, and have been, by the way, for about two, two years, and they've been wrong. Are you anticipating a strong stock market going forward? Well, Brian, I agree with Tom. You know, we have to look at the Fed's action and figure out how much of it is actually data dependency and how much of it is just them buying time and going with this narrative, just giving their policy time to work and hoping that inflation is going to actually come down to the levels that they're looking for without pushing us into the economic recession. But meanwhile, we see higher interest rate affecting the potential earnings and narrowing the margins and are making it difficult to be excited about the fourth quarter rally. And as a matter of fact, you know, our outlook for the next year is becoming a little bit less optimistic as the risks of the stock market are skewed to the negative. So we're telling clients to stay defensive. But you wouldn't call yourself bearish, would you? Just kind of not quite. I would call I would call it being defensive, excited about cash, excited about bonds and looking at the sectors of the the stock market that are positioned for growth, which might not be the sectors that performed well, like industrials, financials, energy mm-hmm. and healthcare. Tom, are you still bullish? Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, I think that this if- little blip in October didn't didn't scare you off. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of technical damage under the surface, and so it's going to take time to repair. That's why I think it's a baby rally that started this week. But, you know, if, if next year uh, the Fed feels comfortable and inflation's heading in the right place and investors feel like inflation is kind of leaving the scene, I think there'd be a lot of positive changes in sentiment and a huge allocation back into stocks. And, you know, I think Long-term rates would come down. I mean, to me, that when we, seems- when we first when we and we got to get to sound. I, I hear that, but but Tom, quickly, when we when we when we get our first sniff of a rate cut, is that a sign to sell or a sign to buy? I think there is so much money that has moved out of equities. Right, equities have not even seen inflows all year. That I think it will be a, a, a real change in the market's behavior. Okay. I mean, it's going to look like a bull market. All right. Earlier today, we're going to switch gears, guys, then I want to get your response. All right, earlier today, we had two legendary investors on CNBC. We had Jeff Gunlock and we had Stanley Druckenmiller. Here's what they had to say about all the spending and debt in America. We have a massive interest expense problem. 
a massive interest expense problem in this country that is going to be, I believe, the next financial crisis. We are spending like drunken sailors. As we've said, I, I, I think he offended drunken sailors. I don't think they would even spend as much as we are, Tom. We're going to start soon spending as much on interest on our debt as we do on Medicare. I want people to think about that. We're going to spend as much on interest as Medicare soon. It's going to hit a trillion dollars a year. Why doesn't anybody or the market seem to care? It's a big deal. I mean, it's, it's a problem. The market's been- not acting like it is. It's yeah, it's uh, it's not at the break point yet, but it is starting to show on the surface. That's why yields have moved up. But yes, it's uh, it's decades in the making and it is worrisome. So I do agree that, you know, that's a tail risk. But we can always just print the money, right? We can print the money. And of course, as you know, the U.S. government owns a lot of hidden assets, whether it's natural resources or national parks. I mean, I guess there's a way to monetize. I'm sure they'll monetize it by just drilling for all that oil. Tom Lee, Katerina Simonetti. Thank you. Is it too late for a little snark? I apologize. All right. Speaking of interest rates and stocks and bonds and more quick programming note tomorrow night, we're going to have Mr. Bill Gross right here on last call. We'll ask him about debt as well. But, you know, he was he made a great trade, a trade because he can do whatever he wants now on regional banks in the spring, sold them in the summer, made a ton of money. He's been sniffing around those as well. We'll try to get some ideas as to what he is doing tomorrow night, seven o'clock. Bill Gross. All right. Inside the market, your stud and dud du jour, the biggest winner of the day. Wisconsin-based Generac, 14% gain, solid results in what one research firm called encouraging indicators for the generator company. The biggest decliner, and that is not like a typo on your screen. Paycom fell 38.5%. Big concerns about a slowdown in its automated payroll system slamming the stock. We're going to have much more on the seeming disconnect between the jobs market and the jobs market-related stocks a little bit late in the hour because there is a big disconnect. All right. We are only getting started and coming up here on Last Call, dine in and chill. DoorDash pulling off an unbelievable feat. But first, closing arguments in the Sam Bankman Freed fraud trial wrapping up just moments ago in the grand finale. Finally upon us, Kate Rooney has been there from the start. Kate. Hey, Brian. So Sam Bankman Freed's fate hangs in the balance as his case goes to the jury tomorrow. Will either side's final plea sway the outcome? We'll talk about that coming up after the break next. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Time for tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the headlines that we think you should know about. Airbnb may be sending up a little warning flag about travel. Yes, earnings beat estimates, but the vacation rental company sees weakening demand through the rest of the year. Airbnb also said it's trying to make its stays more affordable. Many people have been complaining about higher fees, cleaning, and other charges. Shares are lower right now, but they are still higher on the year. Along those lines, listen to this. DoorDash just reporting its best quarter ever. Apparently is just... DoorDash and chilling. And here's an RBI. People are ordering more from DoorDash now than at the height of the pandemic. And it's not just like hot food. It is also grocery. Grocery, a growing part of their business. And DoorDash shares 
are taking off after hours, up just about 8%. And finally tonight, the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried nearly over. Bankman-Fried's defense attorneys and government prosecutors have made their final pitches to the 12 jurors. And the defense just wrapped their arguments. Let's get more on it. Kate Rooney has been in the courtroom since it began and joins us now. Kate. Brian, so we heard about two vastly different versions of Sam Bankman-Fried during closing arguments today. On one hand, a villain. On the other, just a naive entrepreneur who had good intent. The defense team tried to, uh, rather the prosecution, excuse me, tried to simplify Sam Bankman-Fried's criminal case. They called it greed, fraud, and a pyramid of deceit built by the defendant that eventually collapsed. As they put it, billions of dollars for thousands of people were gone. The assistant U.S. attorney told the jury that Sam Bankman-Fried lied to them on the stand. They re he reminded them that instead of a straight answer, he said, I can't recall over 140 times in response to questions by the government. They called his supposed ignorance of crimes at his crypto companies into question and said to believe his story, you'd have to ignore the evidence. You'd have to believe that the defendant who graduated from MIT and built two multi-billion dollar companies was actually clueless. Prosecution laid out what they say were the straightforward facts. The customers believe their deposits were theirs, not to be used by anyone else. Say FTX ads continually said that FTX was the safest and easiest way to buy cryptocurrency and that $10 billion was missing. What is in dispute, they say, is whether the defendant knew that taking money was wrong. They say that he did know. They pointed to documents and testimony from some of his former top executives as proof they claim he gambled with customer funds and then doubled down on bets, even when he knew he was in a multi-billion dollar hole. Bankman-Fried's lawyers, the defense, meanwhile, painting an entirely different story. They say he was acting in good faith. It's not a crime to have bad risk management or to run a company into the ground. They told the jury the collapse of FTX is a lot more nuanced and complicated. And the prosecution is letting on, as the, the defense attorneys put it, it's not a movie. They say Sam is not a villain. Banquet Freed, he got emotional at the end of closing arguments. He stopped short of crying, but was visibly upset. The arguments cap off a month-long trial so far. He has pleaded not guilty to seven counts of criminal fraud and conspiracy. Jury deliberations could begin tomorrow, Brian. Back to you. And given the complexity of the case, Kate, I'm assuming those deliberations, they may not, but those deliberations could go on for a long time. They could. They could. And we'll, the jury uh, will hear the charges. The judge will have to read out the charges tomorrow. We'll also get a rebuttal, by the way, from the prosecution. The defense went, but the government side really gets the last word. It could go quickly, you know, as soon as a couple hours, or we could see more weeks of this. It's really hard to say, and experts, legal experts say, mm -hmm. that it actually has nothing to do with the complexity of the case. Usually it's kind of up to the personality of the juries, the jurors and how hard they want to think about this or if they're trying to get out before the weekend. So there's a lot of factors that go into this. It's a very hard thing to predict how long it'll take to get a verdict. All right, Kate Rooney on it. Kate, thank you very much. All right, by the way, speaking of crypto, another programming note, don't miss our interview tomorrow night with Galaxy Digital CEO Michael Novogratz. That's at 7 p.m. tomorrow Eastern time. You got Novogratz, you got Bill Gross. How could you not tune in? All right, still ahead. Stunning allegations of widespread rent fixing among landlords in D.C. The attorney general behind a new lawsuit is here about it.
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back. Got an update on a big story that we brought to you last night concerning real estate and how brokers get paid. If you missed it, a Mississippi jury or Missouri jury rather found the National Association of Realtors and certain brokerages guilty of colluding to inflate realtor commissions. That jury awarding nearly $1.8 billion in damages. Real estate stocks fell on the news, including Zillow. Now, important to note, Zillow is not a party in the lawsuit or any others. But the company, which helps connect home buyers with realtors, posted earnings after the bell today. They actually beat expectations and website traffic is up despite sluggish home sales, but shares slightly down after hours, then about one and a half percent. On the call, Zillow CEO spoke out about the likely impact from the lawsuit's verdict. These industry changes would tend to look like good initial steps at more transparency and education for consumers. Zillow, the trusted brand and marketplace, will be here to help buyers, sellers, renters, and the industry transact in real estate, regardless of how the dollars flow. All right, it's an important story that we will continue to follow closely right here on Last Call. And that is not the only big real estate-related lawsuit happening right now. Washington, D.C.'s attorney general filing a lawsuit against 14 of the biggest landlords in D.C., along with RealPage, a data-providing firm. He alleges that the apartment owners colluded with RealPage to share data, which led to artificially higher rents for tens of thousands of residents. We've reached out, of course, to the named defendants in the case, and we have received two responses so far. William C. Smith and co. said, quote, we do not comment on pending litigation, adding that they have not received official court papers yet. RealPage, by the way, communications SVP said, quote, in seeking to draw a casual connection between revenue management software like ours and increases in market-wide rents, this copycat suit repeats the inaccuracies of the predecessor cases. The complaint and others like it are wrong on both the facts and the law, and we will vigorously defend it. All right, D.C. Attorney General Brian Schwab joining us tonight for more on the lawsuits. Uh, Attorney General Schwab, thank you very much for joining us. What is sort of the, the basis of this lawsuit? Well, thank you for having me. Uh, We filed a lawsuit today in the D.C. Superior Court uh, under the D.C. antitrust statute. And we allege that 14 of the largest residential landlords in our city conspired with RealPage, a tech company, to uh, artificially inflate rents by colluding with one another, sharing what would otherwise be confidential information that competitors would not normally share with one another, all in furtherance of a conspiracy to inflate rents, effectively a housing cartel here in the District of Columbia. You heard real page. They called it a copycat lawsuit. Your response? Look, I'm not surprised that real page uh, is going to vigorously deny the allegations. Uh, but the fact is that our investigation and the work that went into this very detailed, thorough complaint lays out exactly what happened, oftentimes with admissions made by uh, landlords and members of this alleged conspiracy, where their business practice, the agreements they entered into, were all uh, predicated on sharing information and committing to then charge the rents that the rent-setting algorithm that RealPage 
pedal sets for people. So instead of having landlords in the District of Columbia competing with one another and hopefully then driving rent lower, we have a collusion amongst uh, landlords that causes the rent prices to be even higher. Yeah. So is the is the basic idea this? And again, Attorney General Schwab, if I'm wrong, please say, hey, you're getting it wrong. But the idea is that you've got all these landlords and you've got this data analytics firm and you're alleging that they're basically sharing rent data. So if I know that that tenant is paying three thousand a month, but this tenant is paying twenty eight hundred a month, I'm more likely as a landlord. Hey, you know what? I can get three thousand. So I'm going to do that because it's kind of like knowing somebody's income. Once you know what somebody else is making, you want the same. I think you're right, Brian. In effect, what the algorithm is doing by uh, assembling what would otherwise be confidential information owned only by individual landlords, that information is being shared and aggregated into an algorithm. And then the algorithm spits out a rental price that the landlords who are paying for this service commit to charge. And we know from the investigation and the facts alleged in the complaint that that's exactly what happens. Landlords, we allege, will sometimes keep uh, units vacant rather than lowering the rent to bring a tenant in because in the long run, their occupancy rates Mm. multiplied by the rent they achieve generates larger amounts of revenue for them. So the landlords in this cartel win and, of course, RealPage wins by the fees that it charges for the landlords to participate and receive its services. They may be watching right now. If they're not, they should be, or they may find this clip. If they're watching this, Attorney General Schwab, would you settle? And if not, if you win, what type of relief are you looking for? Our lawsuit is seeking uh, first and foremost injunctive relief. We want this type of illegal anti-competitive behavior to stop. Uh, We're also seeking monetary penalties and damages under the antitrust statute. We can receive treble damages as well as restitution for the tenants in the District of Columbia who've been unfairly forced to pay more rent than they should. We're already facing an affordability crisis in the District of Columbia when it comes to rental housing. And the fact that landlords would conspire with RealPage to cause those rates to be even higher is not only illegal, and anti-competitive, it's flat out wrong. Could you and argue that could, if, I, if I was them here now, I would probably say, yeah, this is just good business. I'm, 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 I'm getting market data. I'm figuring out what the fair market value or fair market rents may be. And this is just like trying to find the, the bid ask spread on a stock. Well, when competitors share what would otherwise be confidential private information with one another, it's not good business. It's collusive business. It's anti-competitive business, and it's illegal. So if you got them, you win, you're asking for injunctive relief. Does that shut down RealPage then? It it shuts down a business model predicated on having competitors collude with one another to set prices. Attorney General Schwab, real pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, Let us know how it's going throughout the process. A lot lot going on in real estate right now. Thank you very much. I I appreciate you having me. All right. Take care. All right. Time now for today's RBI, and this also on real estate, specifically Canadian real estate. That's right. Canadian real estate. It's a first. A new report from RBC is both eye-opening and a bit scary. A massive number of Canadians have adjustable rate mortgages, kind of the way they do things up there. And a ton of those are set to reset in the next three years. And as you might imagine, that reset will not be good for most homeowners. RBC says 
They think more than 186 billion in mortgages will renew next year. And because, like here, rates have soared, RBC estimates millions of Canadian households could have a weighted average payment shock of 32% next year. Ouch. But as bad as that sounds, it gets worse. Because unless something changes, fiscal 2026 renewals could have even more variable rate mortgages going up in part because 2021 was a hot year to buy or refi a home. You have a five-year arm. And so homeowners resetting in 2026 up there in Sarnia and Guelph could face a 48% jump in their monthly payment. Can you imagine your monthly mortgage payment going up 30, 40, or even close to 50% overnight? We're talking millions of people. Now, according to a Canadian housing authority, 53% of home buyers or loan renewers in the second half of 21 went for adjustable rate loans. And so you may ask, why? When most Americans have fixed rate mortgages, we all refied into them, right? Well, because most Canadian buyers do arms. Sometimes it's their only option. And others were enticed with big discounts on those adjustable rate loans to make them look even lower cost. Basically, they were offered and took discounts to go into an arm as opposed to a different kind of loan. And now millions of homeowners up there in Canada are finding out those discounts likely just weren't worth it. Maybe a tough love lesson from our friends up north. Random but expensive for them. All right, on deck. The hits keep on coming. Two big new warning signs from solar and wind and why the governor of New Jersey is out of his mind angry right now. All right, welcome back. If you remember two nights ago, we talked about how higher borrowing costs and inflation and other issues are putting America's new energy build out at risk. Well, late last night, energy giant Orsted killed two planned billion-dollar wind farms off the coast of New Jersey. These turbines were supposed to provide energy to a couple hundred thousand homes when done. But now the project has been canceled. And New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, he is not happy about it. These were centerpieces of his administration. And he said in response, quote, I have directed my administration to review all legal rights and remedies and to take all necessary steps to ensure that Orsted fully and immediately honors its obligations. These wind farms also faced intense local opposition, even from environmentalists concerned about their impact on the environment and whales. That is not the only big energy story happening right now. In fact, the outlook for one of America's biggest solar related companies is getting rather, well, Cloudy. Energy reporter Pippa Stevens is here now with them both. SolarEdge, I guess, it's only down 18%. <laughs> It was down more earlier on. What's going on with Solar Edge? It was a really, really disappointing quarter. So they missed across the board. And remember, it was less than two weeks ago that they came out with preliminary results saying this is going to be bad. And even so, it was still worse than Wall Street was expecting. And this all comes down to evaporating demand. And so remember last year when everyone was worried about an energy crisis in Europe after Russia invaded Ukraine. I heard about that. <laughs> and, and as you've been talking about, you know, everyone was worried about that crisis that now really is kind of on 
on the back burner thanks to their storage tanks being very full and that no longer that worry no longer being front and center. And so Solar Edge and solar companies were planning for this massive amount of demand that they saw last year to continue into 2023. It hasn't. And so what's happening is that distributors have all this excess inventory. And so they're trying to destock that, trying to get rid of that. And so they're not placing new orders with SolarEdge. As a result, for Q4, they expect their revenue to be between 300 and 350 million. Wall Street was looking for 688. Margins, 5 to 8 percent. Brian, two quarters ago, they were over 30 percent. So this is just a really, really disappointing. It's like telling your parents you're coming home with a C and coming home with an F minus. Uh, but but inter- interest so. rates are playing a role in SolarEdge, too, because a lot of people borrow money to put this stuff up. And exactly. this California metering law, without getting wonky about it, right? It's, it's amazing. Some of the states that want solar the most are putting things in place that make it the hardest to afford. That's exactly right. So NEM 3.0 went into effect back in April. And so what we saw in California was that people wanted to squeak under, under NEM 2.0, which was very much more favorable when you send energy back to the grid. And so there was a huge pull forward in demand in California, of course, a very strong market in the U.S. Yeah. And so solar companies are still working through a slowdown in California because so many people went solar in the first quarter to try and get the more favorable. OK, the other, the other big story, and you were two weeks ago, did a great piece. You were in down in Virginia. Virginia, you're out on a boat, you're looking at these giant wind turbines, Dominion Energy really wants to get this built. They're still going, but Orsted, the giant Danish company, in a shock move, even after getting tax credits, said, no, no, we're canceling these offshore New Jersey things. Orsted is Danish, they do trade here. There's an ADR, it's obviously a little more thinly traded. That fell 26%. We're not talking about some tiny company. Orsted, I believe, but is the biggest wind producer or one of in the world. And backed by the Danish government. And so the question well, becomes, that's a <laughs> if they can't build it, who can? And, you know, they, they also took a $4 billion impairment. That was more than they had previously warned. They said it might even be more than $4 billion, all told. And it just goes to show that, you know, in the U.S., the industry is much more nascent than in other places. And so we just don't have that infrastructure, which means the cost of these projects has completely been reset. It does beg the question, did people think rates were going to be zero for forever? <laughs> because all of these contracts and these projects hinged a couple of years ago on a very different... As I tweeted out, I mean, or X'd out, whatever they call it, cheap money or free money, 0% interest rates can mask a lot of problems. And these projects are so spectacularly expensive and they're all done with borrowed money that if you now got to pay five and six percent, you're in trouble. Unless and, you get a gi- unless you get a the- giant rate hike on your <laughs> yeah. customer base, I assume. And but but why was that not worked into the contracts? Is is the question because it seems like that could have been something that potentially would have been avoided. But I think we're also seeing a lot of issues in terms of the equipment itself. So it sounds silly, but one problem is that there aren't enough vessels. There's only a few vessels that can actually install these projects. Mm. They go between Europe and the U.S. And so there's a big backlog. And you know you sign up for for that vessel to install your. Case if you get out of the queue, you have to go back to the beginning. It's many years out. And so Orsted said that one of their New Jersey projects was going to be completed in 2028 because the vessel wasn't there. They literally couldn't get, couldn't get a ship. Yep, yep. That's what it comes down to. <laughs> I said ship. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, this is the problem. You're a first mover. You yeah. face all these challenges. Supply chain not there. It's, and it's, uh, uh, the governor of New Jersey is welcome anytime on this show because I know this is a centerpiece and he's ticked off and he's, there's going to be a lawsuit. Pippa Stevens, thank you. All right. Unlike new energy projects, the job market does remain hot, at least on paper. A report today showed there are still 9.6 million job openings in America. The unemployment rate below 4 percent. And there are now four and a half million more people working than before the pandemic. All good signs. 
But is the market saying things may be about to change? Stocks in the payroll companies have not been doing well lately. I mean, we showed you earlier, Paycom got destroyed today, down 38.5%. Others like ADP and Paychex also lower. They're all also down on the year. And that is not all. Days ago, executive search firm Corn Ferry announced its plan to eliminate roughly 8% of its workforce, citing a, quote, challenging macroeconomic business environment. So the question is very simple. If the job market is so hot, why are these stocks, which theoretically reflect the job market, struggling? Let's take it now to QI, research CEO and chief strategist Danielle DiMartino Booth. Maybe the market is leading. Maybe the market is wrong. There is some disconnect here, though, Danielle. Wait, I'm sorry, Brian. Is, is the supposition here that the market's wrong and that the statisticians are right? Are we supposed to be paying attention? I had attention? to at least throw that out there to presume some incredulity. They wrote know. up the teleprompter, Brian. You had to say that. Look, there are a lot of people who have been following the data for the last few months who haven't been able to square the circle between what the official statistics are telling us and what we're hearing on the ground, what we're seeing in the bankruptcy cycle, and now for the first time, because I think this is really when you get the Warren Buffett, you know, who's coming out of the tide, not do you wanna know, naked, and what they look like. But right now, I think in the current earnings season that we're learning that companies on the ground are just not seeing the job growth that's reflected in the official data. You had Panera tonight come out and say they were gonna normalize the size of their headcount. They were only gonna be cutting 15% of their headcount. Brian, at some point you have to say, is corporate America right and they're on the ground or are bean counters right in Washington, D.C.? Well, listen, by the way, by the way, I'm disappointed in you, Danielle. You know, all my best lines are just made up. They're not, a, there's no prompter for those, for the good stuff. Um, <laughs> but, but that's, not, okay, but here's what I worry about. You know, listen, the jobs are four and a half million new, you know, employed people, according to the St. Louis Federal Reserve, Pre-pandemic, there's no 13 million jobs created. It's four and a half million from pre-pandemic. But we also know, Danielle, that a record number of people are working two and three jobs. I was on the picket line for about eight or 10 hours at UAW a couple weeks ago in Detroit. Every single person I spoke with had a second job. Had a second job because things are so expensive right now. Do you think we're double counting a lot of this and also underestimating how many people just left the workforce? Yeah, I think we are. And, and Brian, if you think back to two years ago and the quiet quitting and millions of Americans taking Social Security the minute that they possibly could because they were going to start to live life and live life big. And yet a few days ago, I had somebody driving to the DFW airport, a Lyft driver on his very first day. The guy couldn't be a, couldn't have been a day younger than 65 years old. So he was reentering the workforce, maybe as a second job and maybe on top of the one that he has because he simply wasn't able to make ends meet. Yeah. Look, at QI Research, we follow Trueflation, TRU inflation very closely. It's got a 97% correlation with headline CPI, but it will also tell you that the cumulative impact of inflation since January of 2020 is 24%, Brian, 24% higher cost of living since before COVID rolled on shore. That's material. It's not going away. It's taking away from discretionary spending. We're certainly seeing that, but, yeah, it, but it's not the- American families make, making their ends meet essentials, gas, food, any easier. That's you referenced Panera. I was I had a couple sandwiches and a smoothie from Panera with my son and a couple of his friends. It was $94. Almost spit it back out, but it was too expensive to do that. I had to eat it. Danielle DiMartino Booth, great stuff. Thank you very much. All right, coming up, a swing 
and a big miss. What is fueling historically bad numbers for the World Series? There could be some surprising answers, and we'll talk about it next. All right, welcome back. Some breaking news from the world of sports. Bobby Knight, legendary and often controversial Indiana Hoosiers basketball coach who won three NCAA championships, has died. He was 83 years old. For more on his life and complicated legacy for the game, as well as to talk about the World Series, bring in Michael McCarthy, senior writer, front office sports. Michael, we were going to get you, we brought you on to talk about the World Series. We'll get to that in just one second. But first off, obviously, Bobby Knight, beloved by some, despised by others. How do we define his legacy? Yeah, rest in peace, coach. Uh, truly one of the giants of American coaching. Uh, Sully, I don't think we've ever seen a coach who had such a mixture of ability and volatility. Uh, he could win three national titles and go undefeated. At the same time, he could make Parcells and Nick Saban look like Boy Scouts. So uh, a truly complicated I- individual, but a giant individual in the world of sports. Yeah, and and uh, could throw a chair, but he could also win basketball games. All right, let's move, let's let's move on. And again, rest in peace. Let's move on to to baseball, the World Series. The ratings have not been good. Okay, the numbers nine point three million for Game One. That was the best. That it was eight point one, eight point one, eight point four eight. They had to go up against Monday Night Football. I get that, but uh, I mean, is this just because it's the Rangers and Diamondbacks, or is is this just symbolic of? Uh, maybe a bigger problem that baseball still has. I I think baseball uh, World Series ratings are striking out for a number of reasons. One, as you said, you've got two virtually unknown teams here uh, from small markets. Two, where are the stars, Sully? We need Otani. We need Judge. We need Acuna. Uh, There's only one player on either one of these teams who has even had a top 20 best-selling jersey. So the, the lack of stars is uh, is certainly hurting uh, this matchup. And then again, of course, you know, as you mentioned, you go up against the NFL, you're going to get steamrolled. That's it. Yeah, but also these teams, I mean, both of these teams barely made it. I mean, I shouldn't say it about the Diamondbacks, but overall their combined win percentage was 537, which is one of, if not the lowest ever. So it's not even just that most people probably can't name a player on either team unless, like, it's their kid but, but at the same time, these teams were just nothing really special or fun to watch. Yeah. But but here's what to remember, Sully, from a business standpoint. If the D-backs can win tonight and get this to six or seven games, that will make MLB and Fox very happy because it'll make the advertisers very happy. But if the D-backs lose again tonight, you know, this is tracking to be the least watched uh, World Series of all time, even lower than the 2020 series in the bubble, which was played during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah. Wow. Michael McCarthy, uh, really appreciate you coming on and, and um, rolling with the news that Bobby Knight has passed away at 83. Michael, thank you. Thank you. All right. Time now for our quicker than the ticker, all the best of the rest of the headlines. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock. Toyota seeing a boost in hybrid demand, and they're raising their guidance. Company said quarterly profits more than doubled. It's also raising the wages of non-union factory workers on the heels of the UAW deal. Looking for a new job? LinkedIn premium subscribers can now use an AI-powered job coach to help find their next gig. 
to tell users they'd be good fit for the role and what skills are needed and answer questions, it's a buck wild time. A deer somehow running through a noodles and company restaurant during the lunch rush in, where else? Wisconsin. He got in through the window and made his exit out the back door. Nobody was hurt. The best state to live in this year, Wallet Hub says, Massachusetts, New Jersey, second, and New Hampshire, third, based off a ranking of livability indicators, including affordability, the economy, and quality of life. Halloween's over and the holidays are here, at least according to some people. Starbucks and Dunkin' are unveiling their new holiday menus this week. And Mariah Carey's been defrosted. Take a look. It's It's November 1st, November 1st, and we're already talking about Christmas. I'm done shopping. You know what? I'm going to put the tree up tomorrow. Why? Let's just get the trees up. Put the, I want to wish everybody that's watching a happy new year. All right, coming up, why investors are suddenly losing that love and feeling for online dating stocks. What is happening with dating? Apparently not much. And we'll talk about it next. All right, let's have a little fun, but with like a kind of serious undertone. Apparently, Gen Z and maybe some Gen Xers, millennials, are swiping left on dating apps. That's the no good way. Match group earnings revealed a 6% drop in people paying for Tinder compared to last year, along with the gloomy outlook. Match group, which also owns the dating app Hinge, shares tumbled 16% today, lowest levels December of 2018. Competitor Bumble also stumbling, hitting an all-time low. Rough day. Now, most of Tinder's user base, 18 to 25 years old, apparently. So what exactly is driving younger people to hit the brakes on online dating, especially when it's cuffing season? We're joined by Lindsay Metzelar. She is the host of We Met at Acme podcast about millennial dating in New York City. I'm assuming you're referring to the grocery store. Lindsay, I just learned what cuffing season, by the way, was today. I pretend I know and I do not. But there's clearly something wrong. With dating today, what is going on or what is apparently not going on? Brian, it is very real. There is serious dating fatigue going on, which is just everyone is burnt out by it. They're matching. They're going back and forth, back and forth. And the conversation never goes anywhere. No one actually asks for drinks. And it's burning people out. People are sick of it. Okay, so are you saying, well, of course, during the pandemic, a lot of a lot of cities locked down. Some didn't, but but a lot did. And those people couldn't do anything. So my guess is there was this kind of this mad rush to date. You're saying that that we're just burned out. Yeah, I mean, the pandemic was great for dating apps. It was like there was no other place to meet. And now everyone's like, okay, been there, done that. And even if I pay for this dating app, I'm not really getting that much of a difference. So let me see who I can meet on Instagram. Let me see who I can meet on TikTok or maybe even in real life. Yeah. What is that? IRL on. on, IRL. Yeah. It's in real in real life. It's so is. But maybe is there a I'm not. Listen, these investors, we showed you the stocks they are getting whacked. But let's take it out of the investor game for a little bit. Gasp. I did say that on CNBC. It sounds like you're saying this could actually be a positive IRL. Like, not just swiping left or right, but uh, can I buy you a drink? Right. I think it novel could be. Novel concept. I, so novel. Who would have thought that you could actually meet someone in person? But I think that's what we're seeing is that 
way less people are wanting to invest in the dating apps when they can invest in their social life and, you know, going to that happy hour, that holiday party at their office and, you know, meeting people organically. Not at the office. Don't do it at the office. That's not Lindsay. We got we got <laughs> if you're a guest, if you're a guest, that's fine. So you have give us some yeah. give us. And it's, by the way, we always focus on Gen Z and the millennials. OK, there's a lot of people I know that are on their Let's just call it second trip around the sun, if you know what I mean. They're single again. What's some advice that you could provide to the young and old out there alike in this time of, it is, I would imagine, a confusing time because of all this technology. It is confusing. My advice for however old you are, if you're dating, is to be a yes person. Say yes to that birthday party where you only know that person, you know, one time. Say yes to all of the opportunities to going to that random event that, um, you know, joining that kickball team, whatever it is, you just never know who you're going to meet and who maybe it won't be them, but they have a friend for you or going to the dinner party, you know, just be a yes person. But go to the party. Don't just sit there. That's the idea. You got go get on a plane, go to a, go to a friend's, go out, be out onto the world in an, as a actual human being. Lindsay Metzelar, great stuff. Thank you for the advice. Thanks, Brian. All right, speaking of love, do you know what happened 26 years ago tonight? One of the most popular movies of all time was made, and here's its world premiere. That's right, Titanic made its global debut in Tokyo way back today in 1997. It then went on to win 11 Academy Awards, highest grossing movie of all time until another James Cameron blockbuster dethroned it 11 years later. What a movie. All right, before we go, Bill Gross, Michael Novogratz tomorrow. So we'll see you tomorrow. Have a great rest of your night. Take care. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.